what do you say that we actually finish up the book of Ecclesiastes? Does that sound good to you? Are you ready to finish up the book of Ecclesiastes? He is going to end pretty much how he started. And he's going to end pretty much how he carried through the entire book. But if you're a guest with us this morning, I want to say this. I was thinking about this as we were starting. I know sometimes you can come into places like this, into different churches, and get confused as to what we're doing. Uh, And so we always want to work to be more intentional to explain what we're doing and why we're doing it. Uh, Just like we started the service with a call to worship as Ray explained the role of that element of our time together, how God calls us into his presence and we respond uh, the way we do on Sunday morning with worship out of a heart that receives that invitation. Uh, Now we're going to take some time. This is the part of our time together where we really get after what we talked about in the last couple of weeks, surrendering our hearts to his word. Just as he called us into his presence, now he's going to speak to us through his word and And in response, we want to surrender our hearts to his word. We want to surrender to what he is saying to us through his word. And so that's what we're going to be doing in this time together. And it's our custom. Sometimes we we get in and out of it, but it's our custom to just open the Bible, start at a particular book of the Bible, and go all the way through it. So this morning, I will read some of these chapters in Ecclesiastes, and I'm going to talk about them. And then we're going to read, and then we're going to talk. But we'd like to go through entire books of the Bible so that we can understand what God was saying through the person that he inspired to write that particular book and that we don't dodge things we don't want to talk about and that we don't sit on hobby horses of things that we like to talk about. Uh, so this morning, we're going to finish our look at the book of Ecclesiastes, which is probably the most neglected book in the Bible, uh, maybe next to Zephaniah or Philemon. Um, in pastoral preaching. Uh, It's one of the most neglected books because it's not one of the most difficult books to understand, but it's one of the most difficult books to deal with because it's so real, because it's so honest. And though the church may neglect the book of Ecclesiastes, the culture hasn't. For centuries, great writers and great thinkers have said there's no truer book, no truer thing that's ever been penned than the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes presents us with life in a fallen world, a life of biblical realism, a life of struggle, a life of frustration. But it's a call on Solomon's part to live that life in the midst of this world with a deep and abiding and fierce and passionate hope and trust in the God who knows all things, in the God who ordains and sits over all things. It's a deep, deep, passionate call to us to trust God with all that we are, that we might live free in this life. And Solomon's gone about that by taking this journey. And he chose to deliberately try to figure out if there was purpose, if there was meaning, if there was satisfaction, if there was deep and abiding joy that could be found in anything in life apart from a relationship of hope and trust in the creator God. He said, under the sun, in a life that is separated from a dependence upon God, under the sun, is there any real meaning, lasting meaning, any long-term profit, deep and abiding profit that can be found in all that I can experience, all that I can see, all that I can understand, and all all that I can know? And this book is, is a record of Solomon's journey into all of our experiences in life. It's a record of his exhaustive attempt to try to suck out of life all that he could suck out of it in an attempt to see if significance or meaning could be found in it apart from God. And time and time again, he's come back to a resounding no. That though there may be temporary pleasures, 
Though this life is to be enjoyed, though God's good gifts through his creation are meant for us to enjoy, they're meant for us to enjoy and then roll back up in praise and trust and hope towards him in worship. That while temporary joy is found in creation, it can never provide the deep and lasting satisfaction, the meaning, the security that all of our hearts are longing for. That's been his journey. That's been his refrain. This morning we're going to finish up his book. So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them up to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 11. We're going to finish up chapter 11 into chapter 12, and we're going to see what Solomon has to say to us. As we do that, let me pray. Father, I ask that in the moments that we have together this morning that you would... uh, by your spirit, make your words sweet to our ears. Lord, make your words sweet like honey to our ears. Lord, do what you need to do in our hearts to change our taste buds. Whatever needs to be changed in our heart or in our soul that finds your words bitter, that finds your words sour, that finds your words difficult, or change the taste buds in our soul. Lord, let us find your words sweet. Let us want to devour Ultimately, Lord, cultivate our hearts by your spirit that we would surrender to them. Thank you for the privilege of gathering together as your people to hear your word, to respond to your word, to be changed into the image of your son, that we could go and live and reflect a life of satisfaction and joy in who you are. But we ask that that work be done in the time that we have together this morning. And we ask this for your name's sake. Your name will be made much of, not only in what I speak, but your name will be made much of in the way that we live, in the way that we respond. We want your name to be glorified through our lives in this church. Lord, let us not look to make a name for ourselves in how we respond to your word, but let us respond and surrender that your name may be exalted. Your name will be made great through our lives. We ask these things, Lord, in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 11, verse 7. It's going to start good. It's going to be like scuba diving. You're going to get in the water. It's going to feel good. You're going to see all the things around you. You're going to enjoy it, but then you're going to go back underwater. And if you're like me, you're going to feel claustrophobic and trapped. And you're going to get back up to the surface again. And Solomon's going to start good. He's going to go deep. And he's going to end the way he started. So buckle yourselves in. He's going to go down swinging here. Chapter 11, verse 7. Solomon said, light is sweet. And it's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. So he's saying real real gently here in the beginning, I I know that I've said some things that have been hard. I know that I've dropped some bombs on your life. And I know that it seems like in the midst of my writing, I've majored on all the unexpected, all the frustration, all the struggle, the imminence of your end. I know that it seemed dark and, I, and I've been depressing, but listen, listen. You know there are days when you wake up when everything just clicks. You know there are days when you wake up and the air just smells better. The coffee just tastes better. Your body just feels better. Your mind just seems more clear. Everything about life seems to be clicking along. There are days that are going to be so 
sweet in this life. Enjoy them. Enjoy them. Make the most of them. Recognize that they are a gift of God's grace to you in this fallen world. There are going to be excellent days. You know, I, I, I was thinking about this this week when, when I was studying this. That I, don't, I couldn't actually pinpoint the last time I woke up and it felt that way. He's going to talk about that in a minute. But when we were on vacation in California, and we're staying at my sister's house, and she lives in a little town called San Marino, which is right in Pasadena, really. Um, we would wake up, and I remember the first morning I woke up in her house, and the sun was coming through all the windows. And it seemed like sun that I had never seen before. It was bright and crisp and clear, and the entire back wall of her house is a sliding window. So her entire back of her house was wide open. And all the windows in the house were wide open because it got cool enough at night to do that. And the sun was just blowing in and the temperature was perfect. 70 degrees, not a drop of humidity. And blowing in with that temperature were all the roses. Because in Pasadena, everything seems to be covered with roses. And her entire yard, all the way around her house, were just different varieties and colors of all these roses. And they were just blowing in the windows. And I woke up and everything just seemed right. How could people get depressed who live out here? I woke up and I felt healthier. My mind felt cleaner. I opened up my Bible and the pages just seemed to jump off. God felt very near, very present. The coffee was sweet. I remember getting in the car and driving off to go run an errand for her thinking, people get to live like this every single day. But cars would zoom past me on the road as I was just taking it all in and they're yammering on their cell phones and they're reading papers while they're driving and I realize that they've forgotten what all this is like. They wake up to this every single day. But for me, it all just clicked. And Solomon said, there are going to be days when it's just sweet. It's just sweet. Enjoy them. They're gifts of God's grace. This is This is good. But now we're going to remember why we don't like Solomon. Look at the last half of verse 8. If a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember this, that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Now he's back to reality. Those days are going to be sweet, but remember, you've got a finite number of, breath, of breaths in those lungs that you've got. You've got a finite number of times that you're going to breathe in and breathe out before it's all done. Remember that that day is coming. And remember that in the midst of all those beautiful days, all those days where it all clicks, there are going to be days that you wake up and you want to bang the snooze button. You're going to wake up and you're going to roll over and your back's going to hurt. You're going to get out of bed and your knees and your ankles are going to hurt. You're going to throw on your clothes and they're not going to be clean and they're not going to be ironed. You're going to get your coffee and the coffee's going to spill on you. And you're going to be late. And you're going to be frustrated. And there's going to be traffic. And people are going to honk at you. The people that you love, the people that you trust are going to gossip about you and betray you. Remember, there are days that are going to be sweet. Enjoy them. But remember, the days of darkness and frustration, there are many. Remember that. So don't waste the good ones. Don't waste the good ones. Don't waste the moments of glory and beauty that God has given you in this life. Don't waste those days. There aren't going to be too many of them. Look at verse 9. Rejoice, rejoice, young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all of these things, 
God will bring you in the judgment. Now, he's writing this, most scholars think, and you can tell by this, for an audience of young people who would be trained up in, in the moral law, in the law of God, in right living. And this would be a letter that would have been written to them to train them in life, to teach them what to go after, what to avoid, what to pursue, and what not to pursue in their life. But listen, you're all young relative to somebody else. Really. You're all young relative to somebody else. So don't turn Solomon off here because he's going to say things that you may have more experience with than those who he's talking to. And those of you who are still young, those of you who are still in the prime and youth of your life, pay extra close attention to what he's about to say. Because what he's about to say is you don't have a lot of time left, even though you think you do. Don't waste the life that he's given you. Don't waste the breath that he's given you. Don't waste the gifts that he's given you. Don't waste the opportunities that he's given you. Don't waste the grace that God has given you in this life. You've only got one. You've only got one. He's going to implore you not to waste it, no matter what age you are. Look at verse 10. Here's how we're going to do it. He's going to get immensely practical in the rest of this book. So just if those of you are into practical stuff, he's going to get crazy practical here. How do we not waste the life that we have left? And how do we walk in the ways of our heart in a way that doesn't get us into trouble? How do we walk in the ways of our heart that is so deceitful that we've talked about the last couple of weeks that doesn't get us into trouble? Here's what he's going to say. First thing, verse 10. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. So how do you walk in the ways of your heart that doesn't get you into trouble? That doesn't get you deceived? That doesn't get you falling into a trap and into a snare? The first thing that you've got to do is remove the vexation from your heart. Now listen, first and foremost, let's be really simple on the front end. Is this a suggestion or a command? It's a command for those of you who are looking at me like deer in the headlights. He's not saying it's good for you to want to remove the vexation from your heart. It's not enough to want to remove the illusions from your heart that we've been talking about, that he's been unpacking this entire time. It's not enough to just say, yeah, I think that would be a good idea. What he's saying is if you want to walk in the ways of your heart in such a way that, that's wise and results in a life well-lived and not wasted, the first thing that you have to do is be about removing the vexation from your heart. We talked a lot about this in the last couple of weeks. You have to watch your life and your doctrine closely. If you weren't here, you can go back and listen to them. We even produced a little booklet and a handout as a, as a guide to help you in this process. But he says you have to be about watching your heart. Walking in the ways of your heart is going to land you in a heap of trouble if you don't get about the business of removing the vexation from your heart. The second thing he says is you need to put away all pain from your body. Honestly, I think this is just Solomon's way of saying you need to steward the body that you've got. You've only got one. You've only got one. Young people, you feel like it's going to last you forever. It's not. It's not. 19 years I spent in competitive sports. Two primary sports that I played for 19 years. Never had a back injury, never had a knee injury. God was very gracious to me in the entire time. Um, I hurt my ankles a couple of times, but that was to be expected. But really, outside of that, no major injuries. When I quit playing sports, I began to make fitness my sport for a number of years. But then we had kids. And when Jude was born, he pretty much became my sport. Um, 
and, and the stewardship of my physical body deteriorated. And I try to tell people the last five years has been like a house settling and the foundation of a house settling. Um, my ankles sound like wooden floors and my knees don't bend the way they used to. And I think my hamstrings used to be that long and now they're about that long. I can't do what I could do five years ago. I've tried a couple of times to do things that I used to do five years ago, and in that time, I've hurt my back twice. An injury that I never did in 19 years. My body is not what it used to be. I can't do what I used to do. It, it, it needs particular care. While you're young, steward your body. You've only got one. It is one day going to betray you. This is what he's about to talk about. Lest you unless you fail to see the importance of this. This is what he's going to get into. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near, when you will say, I have no delight in them. So the first thing you've got to do, the first thing you've got to be about, if you're going to walk in the ways of your heart in a way that doesn't land you in a ditch, is you've got to remove the vexation from your heart. And he's going to encourage you to steward your body because you've got to get yourself there. He's going to come back to that in a minute. But the second thing he, he says here is now remove the vexation and remember your creator. Now inherent in that is a whole series of sermons, but the one thing that it tells us is that there's something about us in relationship to God. We didn't just happen. We didn't will ourselves into existence. We didn't just show up on the scene one day, there was a creator. There is a creator who had an intentionality about you. There is a creator who spoke and all things that exist came into being. There is a creator then who has creative rights over all things that he has created. There's something that you've got to begin to grasp about what he's saying in your relationship between you and God. You, you've got to remember that he is the creator. You are the creation. That has massive implications for how you relate to who God is to how you relate to your life to him. And he said, if you're going to walk in the ways of your heart in a way that doesn't land you in a hole, you need to remember your creator now. You need to remember him in the days of your youth. Don't put off to then what you need to do now. You know, 99%, and the statistics adjust all the time, but 99% of people who, whose hearts turn towards Christ in their life do so before the age of 28. 99%. What that says is 1%, maybe a little bit more, give or take, for the, for the analysis, after the age of 28, will never repent of their sin and turn in their hearts towards Jesus. The majority of people in our culture, the greatest percentage of people in our culture, tend to look at the remembering of their creator as something that they will do when they have kids. When they've got kids, they'll... They'll go back to church because the kids need to learn about who God is and it would be good for them. Maybe it'll keep them in line. Maybe they'll be better kids. They won't embarrass us so much out in public if they go to church because in church, maybe they'll teach them something that I can't teach them at home because it's not really evident or real for me. But statistics say that 1%, if not maybe a little bit more, a little bit less, after the age of 28 ever significantly remember their creator in such a way that it draws them to their knees in repentance. So, a day is coming, Solomon says. A day is coming when you're not going to want, and this is going to be hard for you to, to realize, and, and, and I'll be honest, because I want to be honest with you. 
this was hard for me to stomach. I'm, I'm a relatively young guy, um, and I read this, and I had to stop because I knew what I would say or how I would teach it, but I had to wrestle with what it actually meant for me. And so let me be honest, this is actually going to be hard for a lot of you to hear because you're not really going to believe it. It hasn't really settled in with you yet. But there's going to be a day, Solomon says here, when you're not going to want to be here anymore. Remember your creator in the days of your youth while you are young. Remember your creator in the days of vitality and strength with so much life ahead of you. Remember who he is so that you can walk in the ways of your heart and not find yourself lying in a ditch somewhere because at a certain point, the reality of you turning to him is slim to none and there will come a day. There will come a day down the road when you are actually going to be displeased with even being here. You're not going to want to be here. He's talking about the process of aging in your life. And this is what he's going to get to. And Some of you can speak to this more specifically, and he does it in a real poetic way. I'm not going to put it on the screen because it's way too much, but listen to what he says. There comes a, picture, there comes a time, he said, when you're not going to want to be here. You will have no delight in these days, and here's why. He said, before the sun... The light, the moon, and the stars are darkened. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Before the sun, the light, the moon, and the stars are darkened. And the clouds return after the rain. He's talking about losing your your vision. The eyes are going to go. The beauty with which you take in his creative world, his, his glory and his power that's on display in creation, it's going to go. Your eyesight is going to dim. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Because in the, in the day, and it will come, the watchmen of the house will tremble. He's talking about your arms and your hands. There's going to come a day when even buttoning your shirt is going to get difficult. The capacity with which you have to control your arms and your hands is going to diminish. For many, your hands will begin to shake. The steadiness with which you have now will be gone. And it's going to get tough. Remember your creator in the days of your youth because a day will come when the mighty men, your, your legs, they're going to stoop. They're not going to be as strong as they used to be. They're not going to be as sturdy as they are now for so many of you. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the day that the grinding ones stand idle because they are few. What's he talking about there? Your teeth. There's going to come a day your teeth, those pearlies, they're going to be gone. You're not going to be munching on corn on the cob in the summer. It's coming. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. The day is going to come when those who look through the windows grow dim and the doors on the street are shut. He's gone back to your eyes, and scholars tend to think that he said something else here with the doors on the street are shut. And again, we're interpreting metaphor here, so I don't think anybody's going to get it right but Solomon, but what most commentators think he's talking about here is that particular look you get when you age and you lose your teeth. And as the muscles in your face get weaker and your teeth are gone and your gums begin to recede and there's that puckered look that tends to happen as you age, they tend to think it would be the doors on the street being shut is that look of the mouth receding back in on itself in old age. A day is going to come and you're going to age when the sound of the grinding mill is low, and one will arise at the sound of the bird, your ears, you're not going to hear 
the way you used to. And all the laughter, all the daughters of song will sing softly. The music and the voices and the sounds that you enjoy. You're not going to hear them the way that you used to. And there's going to come a time as you, as you age that you're going to go to bed early and the sound of the bird in the morning is going to wake you up. Dinner moves down to four. The alarm goes off at four in the morning. Your body just shifts. You're going to go to sleep early. You're going to wake up early at the sound of the bird. But the, the beauty of God's created world that you hear and you take in through your ears, the beauty of music, the beauty of the birds, the beauty of your loved one's voices, the, the beauty of all those things that you take in by God's grace through your ears, it's going to be gone. So remember your creator now. Remember him now. Don't wait. Don't, don't put it off to another time because the day is coming when what you have now will not be the way that it is. Furthermore, a day will come when men are afraid of a high place and terror is on the road. There's a natural reality that as you age, you're not quite as um, adventurous and ambitious as you used to be. 95 gets a little daunting. You don't just want to jump on the interstate and tear off down the road as people are going past you. There, there is a cautiousness that begins to set in as you age. It's coming. It's coming. The almond tree will blossom. You know what color an almond tree is when it blossoms? White. You know what he's talking about? Your hair. The almond tree is going to blossom. That beautiful hair is going to turn gray or it's going to fall out. One or the other. Maybe both. Yeah, maybe both. It's going to happen. The grasshopper, your life is going to be like the grasshopper that drags himself along. The grasshopper that once leaped and bounded and jumped. He now drags himself along in life. You're not going to be quite as spry as you are right now. It's coming. And the caper berry is ineffective. You know what he's talking about there, don't you? Caper berries for them are like little blue pills for us. Your sexual vitality is going to diminish. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And nothing's going to be able to help it. It's going to be rendered ineffective. He left that for last. But it's coming. For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about the street. So each breath that you take, each one that you breathe in and then blow back out, is one more that gets you one step closer to this happening. So don't waste it. Don't waste it. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Remove vexation from your heart that you might be able to walk in the ways of your heart and not find yourself crippled. And left aside in a ditch. Don't waste it because he's about to say four things that mean even while you're young and you look to those days down the road, it might actually happen quicker. Lest you not listen to him, he wants you to know that all that he just said can actually happen quicker. He said, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the silver cord is broken. That is, it's fine. Whole process can happen real quick. Before the golden bowl is crushed your head, before the pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel of the cistern is crushed, your heart, heart attack, spine, head, it can be done like that, and you have no idea when it's coming, but you know right now that you're still here, and that you're breathing, and that in that moment, right now, with the breath that you have, he's saying, don't waste it, don't waste it. Remember your creator 
in the days of your youth. Because that day will come when the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. I love the fact that he said right here in this verse that when that day comes and your body returns to the dust from which it was formed, your spirit will return to the God who gave it. Again, remember your creator because your life is not your own. You didn't create it. You didn't just think it into existence. Nobody just said, Robert should be here. and Robert's here. No, there is a creator who sits and rules over all that has been created, including you. And when you die, your spirit will return and stand before him. But he's going to get to that in a minute. What he's trying to say and trying to get your attention in this is to live now while you're at the peak of all of your capacities. The life that you have right now, no matter what age you are sitting here right now, in the life that you are living, you are at the peak of your capacities. If you are not as strong now as you were 10 years ago, you're still at the peak of your capacities because it's only going downward from here. So right now, in what you have, no matter where you are, don't waste it. Remember your creator in the days that you have now. Remember him, that you might be able to walk in the ways of your heart. That you might be able to walk in the ways of your heart and not stand before him in the end as a fool. But live deep with wisdom. Don't put off Repentance. Don't put off repentance for another day. Don't put off repentance for another day. Because you don't know what is coming. You don't know what's next. Remember your creator now. Let's keep going. I'll sit on that too much. In addition... In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered and he searched out and he arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. Now, remember we said that this book was kind of like a Dukes of Hazzard episode? The narrator would come in before the commercial to tell you what was going to happen, and then the action would take place. And then you go to commercial, and the narrator would come in and tell you what was about to happen, and it would kind of fit. The narrator is now coming back in. Now, nobody knows, is it Solomon writing outside of his story and framing it into narration? Is it someone else narrating it as a a teacher of what Solomon had said? Nobody actually knows. The debate is out. When we see Jesus, he'll tell us where we were right and where we were wrong. But it's going to sound like someone else is speaking right here. And what he's saying is that Solomon, the, the teacher, he learned what he learned with the wisdom that he had, not so that he could just be puffed up in his own knowledge, but he learned it so that he could help other people. He learned the truth of God's wisdom so that he could impart it to other people. He learned the truth and he savored the truth of God's wisdom because it's only God's wisdom that actually can cultivate a soul that finds delight and joy in God, that can produce a life that lives in what we call wisdom, what we've been looking at as wise before God. And so he tells us in in verse 10 right here that Solomon chose his words very carefully in order to have the maximum impact with them. He wasn't frivolous with what he said because he knows that the words of wisdom can produce transformation and change. So the words of wise men are are like goads and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails 
and they're given by one shepherd. Do you know what a goat is? A goat is, um, back in the day, it was like a, it was a long stick with a pointed end, and it's what shepherds would use to move their herds along. It'd be like a cattle prod today. So you'd get up behind the, the herds, and you'd poke them with the goad, and it would goad them into doing something. You ever heard that expression? He goaded me into doing that, blaming him for why you did what you did. He goaded me into saying that. He goaded me into punching him. A goad is just a prod that moves somebody in a direction. And Solomon's saying that the words of wisdom, the words of God, they're, they're like prod, they're like goads that, that move us in a direction. And God's using the words of Solomon to goad us, to move us into a response, to move us into repentance, to move us into living a life of joy and, and depth and, and passion in relationship with him. God is using these very difficult words that we've been looking at all spring. These words that are so hard for our arrogant and self-righteous souls to surrender to and see the beauty in. God is using these words to, to goad us. And wise words used this way that come from one shepherd, he says. The shepherd are like nails that fix us into place. They goad us into response, and they fix us into the place where we're supposed to be. The words of God, the wise words of God, the words of life and truth, they're words that move us towards the life that he's calling us to live and fix us into the place where we're supposed to be. They're not words that are meant to amuse us or entertain us. They're, they're words that are meant to change us, to transform us, to recreate us, and that we might display the the image of our creator. But beyond this, he goes on, my son, be warned. Of the writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. This was probably put in for pastors. Be warned, the writing of many books is endless, and the excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. Everyone will have an opinion on this wisdom. This is what he's getting at. Everyone's going to have an opinion. Of the writing of books, there will be no end. And, and he's talking directly about books in relation to what's been written. Books about wisdom. Books about life. Books about living. Books used to train you in the ways in which you should live. This is what this book was for originally. And so of the writing of books like this, it's going to be endless. Everybody's going to have an opinion about how you should live. Everybody's going to have an opinion on, on what's wise and what righteous living is. And, and if it was true then, it's got to be more true now. I mean, if printing is as much as easy as it is now, and blogging is as easy as it is now, and, and, and tweeting is as easy as it is now, of the writing of books and suggestions about how to live, it will be endless. But I can guarantee you, you can read every single book in the library, and none, except maybe a few, will point you back to this one. And he had just said that wise words from one shepherd, one shepherd, are like goats and nails that fix you into place. But everybody's going to have an opinion. Everybody's going to have something to say. But only one voice really matters. And nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. And an excessive devotion to what everybody else has to say is going to wear you out because you'll be living in a life of contradiction. And the wisdom is found in one place. That's what he's saying. And then here he comes to the end. 
And this is where he's going to pack his punch. He's been measuring, and here he comes. The conclusion, when all has been heard, everything has been heard, when he's pursued all that he's pursued, when he's lived in a way of trying to exhaust every conceivable alley for joy and satisfaction that's possible, when all has been heard, when everything's been said and done, here's the end. Here's what he's come to. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Some of your Bibles will say because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Amen. You want to walk in the ways of your heart? You want to enjoy the grace that God has given you in this life right now? You want to walk in the ways of your heart in freedom and in joy in a way that doesn't find you broken in a ditch somewhere? You're going to need to remove the vexation from your heart. Diligent about watching your life, watching your doctrine. You're going to need to take care of yourself. Because this is the only body that you've got to get you there. Take care of yourself. You're going to need to remember your creator now. Don't put off till later what you can do now. Don't create a list, like we talked about weeks ago, of want-to-be's and want-to-do's only to wake up one day and find that most of your life is characterized by wish I had or should have done. Remember your creator now. Don't put off repentance till then when you have breath now. And you want to not wind up in a ditch? Here's what he says. Fear God. Fear God and obey his commandments. What, what is that? What does it mean to fear God? Listen, in the most holistic understanding of what the Bible talks about, when it talks about the fear of God, it's talking about an awe, a sense of awe that we are supposed to have in response to who God is. It's a sense of awe and a fear that's born out of an understanding of who he is in his holiness and in his judgment, and in his justice, and in his righteousness, but in his mercy, and in his love, in his grace, and in his forbearance. The fear of God is not some slavish fear to what God will do to me because of my sin. Who's that fear about? If you understand the fear of God as something that's related to what God is going to do to you because of what you've done, who are you really thinking about? Yourself. That's a self-centered view of the fear of God. It has nothing to do with what the Bible is talking about. The Bible is talking about a fear of God that comes in this reverential awe for who he is because of all that he is. And in that, it brings a conviction of your sin to light. But that fear and that awe and that reverence is mixed with an understanding of his holiness and his grace. You see, a Hebrew would have understood this. When we talk about fear, it's always punitive. Fear is always negative in, in our vocabulary, in our, in our language. Rarely do we ever talk about a healthy or a good fear. You hear fear, you think, ah, scary, get away. But a Hebrew would have read this very differently because throughout the Bible, when the fear of God is talked about, it's talked about in a holistic way. To some, the fear of God is terrifying. To the enemies of God, they were terrified of him. They had a holy fear of him, of who he is. 
But to those who know him and those who love him, when you read about the fear of God, it produces worship. It produces repentance. It's a fear of his holiness. It's a fear of your sinfulness in light of his mercy and a right understanding of who you are that brings you down in in humility and rolls back up into worship. Solomon said, if you want to walk in the ways of your heart, you need to fear God. You need to cultivate a healthy fear of God. Because the reality of it is, and I think this is true for a lot of us, you can know a lot about God and have no fear of him at all. I mean, you can know a lot of things about God and have absolutely no fear of him at all. Which is crazy because even the demons, the Bible says, know God. And it produces a fear. They know everything about who he is, and it produces a fear in them. But some of us know all about him and have no awe. It produces no response of worship or reverence before him. You can know a lot about him and never actually fear him. And here's the thing. You can measure yourself on this, and I'll give you the scale, and you can do the test yourself. It's a scale. You either think much of God and little of yourself and fear him for who he is and have an awe of his majesty and his glory in relationship to who you are. Or you can think much of yourself and very little of him and know much about him, but it not produce much fear, reverence, worship in your heart and your life. And all of our life, every single day, And all that we do and all that we say, we're walking on that scale somewhere. We're either thinking much about ourselves and very little about who he is, or we're looking at our life and thinking much about who he is and very little about ourselves. And you can look at your life, you can look at your actions, you can look at your thoughts, you can look at your motivations, you can look at your passions, you can look at everything about you, and you can find yourself there somewhere. To walk in the ways of our heart, to not wind up in a ditch, you've got to cultivate a healthy fear of God. See, we fear all kinds of things. We fear the opinions of other people. <laughs> we, we, fear, <laughs> we fear success. We fear failure. We fear people. We fear bugs. We fear traffic. <laughs> we fear ourselves. But what about God? God. You need to cultivate a a healthy fear of God. Luke chapter 12, Jesus said this. Don't fear what? Don't fear one who can only destroy your body. Don't fear one who can only damage you in this life now. Don't, Don't fear what can only hurt you here. Fear the one who has the capacity to end it and take it from you. Fear the one who for eternity has the say in what's going to happen to you. Don't fear the one who can only hurt you. Fear the one who can take your life and demand an account for it for eternity. Fear him. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fool Solomon has been talking about is the one who despises the wisdom that comes from 
the one true God. But the fear of him, a healthy reverence of him, produces wisdom. Proverbs 14, 26 and 27 says, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. Everything about your life, everything about our culture is telling us, if you want confidence, you, you insecure person, you want confidence, you need to love yourself more. You need to have more confidence in yourself and your capacities. Then life will go well. Then it'll go better for you. Then you'll learn to love. Then you'll learn to receive love. You just need to learn to love yourself more. Proverbs 14 says, the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. And the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Psalm 110 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. Psalm 147 says, his pleasure, talking about God, is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of a man. The Lord delights in those who fear him who put their hope in his unfailing love. You see, it's the fear of the Lord. It's a healthy, reverential fear of the Lord that produces an obedience in our life that comes from a delight and a worship in who he is. It's the fear of the Lord in your life that produces a life of obedience that comes not out of some sense of trying to earn something before God or prove something to God. It's the fear of the Lord that produces an obedience in your life that springs out from a heart of worship, a heart of delight in who he is. The fear of the Lord is ultimately a delight in who God is in and of himself because you understand who he is and who you are in relationship to him. That's what produces a life of obedience. This is what Solomon says is the whole duty of man. This is your whole duty, ultimately to cultivate a healthy fear of God that produces a life of obedience that obeys his commands. That's the second part of what he said. Fear God, follow him. Fear God, follow his commands. Walking in the ways of your heart without falling into a ditch, removing the illusions, removing the vexations, remembering him now. Don't putting repentance off now, but ultimately cultivating a healthy, reverential awe for who he is that produces obedience in your life. That's what God has called you to. That's what God has called us to. It's hard for us because we like to flip the script. He calls us to know him and to follow him. We like to flip that and decide what we should do. We like to say, I would like to be you, and I would like to determine what I should be doing and what would be healthy and what would be right and what would be wrong. It started in the very beginning with Adam and Eve. It's what we call sin. It's this desire to flip the script on God and is determined to be him for ourselves. That's not what he said. Wisdom, life, health, joy, significance, meaning, purpose, deep and lasting, abiding joy come from cultivating a heart that fears him, that knows him, that worships him, and produces a life of obedience, a life that delights to follow his commands. See, without that fear of the Lord, Obedience, it just seems like a duty. It's not much of a delight. And God's commands seem more like suggestions and less about words of life and wisdom that we cling to, goads that prod us along and nails that keep us right where we should be. They feel a whole lot more like suggestions that we can give or take, that we can take or leave, that we can judge by our own 
best understanding. But the fear of God produces a heart of worship that delights in following him, that sees the wisdom and the beauty and the joy in his commands. I mean, as we, as we kind of wrap this up, I want, I want you to think about this. Where, where do you think, in your heart, when you think about the commands of God, where do you think they come from? Where do they come from? Do they come out of a place of, of anger? And God just trying to keep you in line, trying to look at his creation that rebels against him and slap them all in line to get out of them what he wants? Or do you think they, they come from love? Do you think his commands come from a place of anger or do you think they come from a place of, of love? I mean, remember, God is, we've talked about this for weeks, God is a dad. And he is our father. And in repentance, we become his children. And his commands come out of his love towards us as a father. And only a foolish child, only a foolish child would ultimately know their parents' love, know their parents' care, know their parents' protection, and ignore their wisdom. Ignore their direction. It's the foolishness in our hearts as kids that ignores the the wisdom and direction of our parents, ultimately to our own peril and our own demise. It's the same with God. His commands come to us out of his love for us, and it's only in the foolishness of our own hearts, the foolishness of our own souls that we ignore We ignore his commands. We ignore his directions and continue to follow our own desires and follow our own ways, ultimately ultimately to our own demise and our own peril. You see, your, your struggle with sin, your public struggle with sin, or your private struggle with sin, your struggle with the thoughts and the motivations and the intentions of your heart, your struggle with those things that everybody sees and those things that you've kept hidden, that you've kept away from everybody, those things are just a public or a private display of your lack of fear before God. It's ultimately what he's saying here. Your struggle with sin is either a public or sometimes private display of your lack of fear before God, which boils itself down ultimately. It boils itself down ultimately to not knowing who he is and not responding to him rightly. It boils itself down to you not truly knowing who God is and then responding to him rightly. That's the root issue. That's the root issue. He's a dad and he loves us. He cares for us and he protects us and he guides us and we're struggling to respect and honor and obey him. That's the deal. That's what it comes down to ultimately. The beauty of that is when you understand that, when you understand that our struggle with sin isn't a struggle so much to just understand all the different rules that are in here that we've got to follow or not follow, and they fall into a category of it's okay to do it or not okay to do it, or I can do this one sometimes and not sometimes, and categorizing all the things that we've been taught for so long we're supposed to do and not to do, and we understand that our struggle with sin ultimately comes down to a failure to understand who he is and respond to him rightly. When we come to understand that that's the case, it takes our struggle with sin away from this thing that we've got to fight at with all that we are, and it puts it right back into a relationship with him. 
It puts it right back into a relationship where the root issue, the root cause, and ultimately the root solution is a right understanding of who he is. A right understanding of who he is for us and who we are in relationship to him. And a right response of turning from ourselves and repenting of our rebellion and our failure of trust and reliance and dependence upon him. It it puts it right back in a relationship of repentance and forgiveness. It takes it out of the order of work and, and things we've got to do and duty. And it puts our battle with sin right back into the arena of relationship. Right back into the place where there's forgiveness. Right back into the place where there's repentance. Solomon said, Fear God and obey his commands. For God will bring every act into judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. Amen. There is a time coming when every single person will ultimately stand before God and give an account for their life. And we don't know when it is. And his admonition to us through this entire book culminates right here. Right here. Fear God. Follow his commands. Fear God. Cultivate a healthy sense of awe and reverence before him for who he is. Follow his commands. In that In that, you will find wisdom, you will find health, and you will be able to live free. Because a day is coming, and we don't know when, only he does, when you will stand and give an account. And the beauty of it all, right now, right here, is that you're still breathing. The beauty of the whole thing is that right here, right now, you're still breathing. You've got a shot. You've got a shot, because right now, there's still breath in you. At the cross, at the cross, your sin was judged for its rebellion and disdain for God. At the cross, your sin was placed on Jesus, who came, and we talk about this all the time, and lived the life that you were created to live before God. And then he died in your place for your sin, paying the price for the life that you continue to live instead of that. On that cross, your sin was judged in Jesus. On that cross, Jesus absorbed and exhausted the wrath of God's righteousness and holiness for your sin, past, present, and future. The good news of Solomon's warning towards us of the judgment that's coming is that for those who remember their creator now, turn from themselves and to him now, their sin, your sin, has been judged already. Jesus exhausted the wrath of God in your place. The eternal God of gods became man and lived in your place died in your place for your sin. There is judgment not only for those who do not know God, but for those who call themselves Christians. The issue is, will you be judged or will you accept Jesus' judgment in your place? That's the issue. And the good news for you at the end of Ecclesiastes is that you're still breathing. God did not overlook your sin. He has not overlooked sin for all time, but he has judged it once and for all in his own son. Jesus paid the price for your sin. And you are saved then by grace 
because you could never pay back what your sin owed God. That's the hope at the end of Ecclesiastes. You want to walk in the ways of your heart. Here's the beauty. Who, who was Solomon's dad? David. One of the most butchered texts that David ever penned that gets butchered in, in the church today was this beautiful line. He said, delight yourself in the Lord. And what? He will give you the desires of your heart. All over churches in this country and all over the churches around the world, people are going to stand up and they're going to read that verse. They're going to read that psalm and they're going to tell their people, want what you want. Think about it. Delight yourself in God and he's going to give it to you. Solomon grew up with the wisdom of his father. Solomon grew up knowing that. And listen to what he's, listen to what he's saying, what David was saying. Delight yourself in the Lord. Find joy in who God is. Cultivate a heart that worships God for who he is. Cultivate a healthy fear of God for who he is. Delight yourself in the Lord. As you do that, he then gives you the desires that are in your heart. You want to walk in the ways of your heart and not end up in a ditch? Fear God. Delight in God. Then you can trust the desires of your heart because he's given them to you. It's not figure out what you want and then somehow figure out how God's going to give it to you. It's fear God. In the fear of God and the cultivation of a heart that fears God, he then gives you new desires. Desires that glorify him in your life. Fear God and then walk in the ways of your heart. Fear God and trust the ways of your heart because he is giving you the desires of your heart. And this is what Solomon is saying. You want to walk in the ways of your heart? Fear God. Fear God. That produces an obedience that comes not from duty, but from delight, because a day is coming when it's all going to be judged. And you will stand before God for your life. And you will either take the judgment for your sin yourself in that day and be separated from God for eternity, or right now, you will accept the judgment that God has placed on his son in your place for your sin. And on that day, you will taste the grace of God in a way that you can't even begin to imagine now. Because the magnitude and the severity of what he did in your place will become so clear. Some of you are smooth, very good at convincing yourself of your own self-righteousness. Some of you have had an unbelievably blessed life, and it has kept you from the weight, the weight of what's to come. Listen, if God had the courage to crucify his own son in your place, he will deal with you too. He will do it. Do not think you are the one that gets a pass on this. If he had the courage to crucify his own son, he's got the courage to deal with you. The Bible says it's the patience of God. (laughs) It's the patience of God that keeps breath in your lungs right now. It's the patience of God. It's not God ignoring what's going on in your heart and in your mind. It's the patience of God, the kindness of God, the forbearance of God, wooing you into repentance. Remember now. Don't put off till then what you need to do now. Does God love you? That's not very kind. Does God love you? Let me say this. 
You want to know if God loves you. That all sounds mean. Solomon sounds dark. Does God really love us in this? The best picture of God's love towards you in this. Look at his son on the cross. You want to know God's love towards you in this? You want to know God's love for you now, facing an imminent death and judgment then? Look at his son on the cross. There is God loving you very actively. There is God loving you very passionately. There is God loving you very completely in the midst of your unloveliness. There is God loving you while you are still unlovely. There is God loving you while you are still unlovely. There is God taking a step towards you while you are running away from him. There is God loving you when there was nothing in you to be loved. Does God love you? He's going to judge people. That doesn't sound very kind. Does he love you? Look at his son. Look at the cross. Look at the love of God calling you back to remember him, to repent, to fear him. Here's how we're going to, uh, how we're going to wrap this up. After I pray, what we're going to do is we're going to take a couple of minutes. And we're just going to reflect. We're going to allow you to pray, allow you to deal. If you're new here, if this is one of the first times you've been with us, that's kind of a pattern that we have. We take a couple of minutes after this time to just reflect and deal. Some questions are going to come up on the screen. They're in your bulletin. Um, and just take about a minute and a half to be silent, to be still before God and and let him deal with us. And then after that, we're going to take communion. And we're going to take communion remembering this, that it's Jesus' sacrifice in our place for our sin <laughs> that holds this whole thing together. It's Jesus' sacrifice in our place for our sin that, <laughs> that holds everything together. It's his faithfulness, not our faithfulness. It's his faithfulness in the midst of our faithlessness that holds this thing together. And if you have given yourself to him, if you have remembered your creator and if you have turned from yourself to him, communion is for you. If today you would remember your creator, if today you would repent from yourself and turn towards Jesus, if this day you would remember your creator and turn from your rebellion towards obedience. If you remember your creator this day and turn from a duty to earn something from him to the grace and joy of delighting in who he is for you, then communion is for you today. And we'll do that together as a family and we'll stand and we'll go to the back and we'll take that and then we'll come back and we'll sing and we'll celebrate and we'll rejoice with our mouths, celebrating the good news of what God has called us to do because of who he is and what he has done for us. We'll sing and we'll celebrate Jesus taking our sins in our place, dying to pay the price for our sin, that we could trust him and know his grace and walk and live free in this life. You want to walk in the ways of your heart. You want to walk in the ways of your heart that produces wisdom, that experiences joy and delight and passion. Remove the illusions. Lose the illusions. Remember your creator. Repent while you have breath. 
Remember your creator. Cultivate a healthy fear of God. Cultivate a healthy fear of God that produces obedience out of delight. In that, you can walk in the ways of your heart and trust that God is transforming the desires of your heart. And you can trust that the desires that you have bring joy and glory to him. Let me pray. Father, thank you uh, for a very, very frustrating and difficult book. Uh, thank you for Solomon. Thank you for Ecclesiastes. Thank you for your word that you ordained to goad us towards you, to prod us and move us along towards you that we might remember you and repent, that we might not waste the breath that we have, that we might not waste the time that we have, that we might live deep, live now, that we might experience the real joy that comes from you. Lord, help us right now. Lord, I don't know what illusions are capturing every heart in here, Lord, but Lord, move us, move me to want the one true thing that can never deceive, to hope in the one thing that can never deceive, and move me to lose hope in all the vexations, in all of the illusions. Lord, help us to cultivate a healthy fear of you. Lord, in all of you, not centered on us, but centered on who you are. Lord, let our lives be lives of obedience, delightful obedience, like children who trust their dad, like children who love their dad and trust their dad and know their dad wants the best for them and that your, their dad is directing them in the way that will bring them the most joy. Lord, help us to trust you and follow you in obedience like a kid who trusts their dad. Show us where we fail to trust. Lord, help us to turn from our, our rebellion, to turn from our fear, to turn from our distrust towards you, to know you, to love you, to serve you. We ask these things, Lord, by the grace of your Son. Amen.